Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, A Spiritual Battle. All right, so last week, if you were with us, we saw the leaders of the church of Antioch hear and heed the voice of the Holy Spirit. If you remember, as they, the leaders were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so in response to the voice of the Holy Spirit, the leaders of the church of Antioch laid hands on Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, and they sent them out on what's known as Paul's first missionary journey. And so that was last week. And today we're going to pick it up in chapter 13, verse 4. And so right now, if you're looking at your phone or at the scriptures at Acts 13, 4, just say amen. Okay, so here we go. You ready? So being sent out, Barnabas and Paul being sent out by the church of Antioch. So being sent out by the who? Holy Spirit. Please, please do not set out on your own. (laughs) Make sure you're sent out by the Holy Spirit. And, and that's so important. And later on in the chapter of Acts at another time, you know, we'll talk about those who are sent and those maybe who just went. <laughs> that's, that's for another message. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John to assist them. And so we see that Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, of course, John Mark, the author of the second gospel in your New Testament, they left Antioch, okay? And so we've been talking last week about the the spirit-filled, healthy, vibrant church of Antioch. The elders hear from the Holy Spirit. They send out Paul and Barnabas. John Mark's with them. They leave Antioch, and they go to Seleucia. And so right now, if you see... Um, in all caps, the bold word Syria. Just say amen. Okay, just go up from Syria, you see the port city of Seleucia. So maybe John Mark, you know, he's there serving. Maybe he bought some tickets. And so they get on a boat and they head a little bit across the Mediterranean Sea, southwest to the island, by the way, the home of Barnabas, the island of Cyprus. They land in Salamis. And when they land at Salamis, it says they shared the word of God in the synagogues, okay? So that's in keeping with this whole principle that we get from Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so the first thing they do is they go to the synagogues and they share the word of God. I don't know about you, but I would have loved to have been on a Saturday in one of these synagogues on the island of Cyprus as Paul walks in. Because Paul's a rabbi, Paul's got all the credentials to speak in any synagogue across the Roman Empire, and I would have loved to have been sitting in the back of that synagogue and listened and watched the Apostle Paul take the Jewish scriptures, we call it the Old Testament, and prove to all the Jews in the synagogue that day why why Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That would have been amazing. Maybe someday we'll see the movie when we get to heaven. But man, can you imagine Paul sharing the scriptures, proving that Jesus is the Messiah? And so now in verse six, it says that when they had gone through the whole island, 
as far as Paphos. They came upon a certain magician, by the way, in the Greek, magician, magos, a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, or son of Joshua. And so after ministering in Salamis, okay, again, we look at our map, on the east coast of Cyprus, they're done sharing about Jesus as the Messiah in the very synagogues, sharing their faith, I'm sure, to the Gentiles as well. And they're making their way across the island of Cyprus until they reach the capital of the island, and that, of course, is Paphos. When they get to Paphos, they meet a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus. He, in the ESV, is a magician. How many of you guys, um, in your translation, it says that he's a sorcerer? Let me see your hands. Okay, that's a good translation. Because this guy was involved in astrology, and this guy was involved in the occult. Did you notice that he was Jewish? A Jewish false prophet. So what does that mean? That means that at some time in his life, he turned his back on what we call the Old Testament. He turned his back on the truth of the Hebrew scriptures and he turned to pagan darkness. And it's so sad when people make life choices that eventually damn their souls to hell. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible does not change. And you know what the Bible says? Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse nine, God said to the children of Israel as they're getting ready to enter the promised land that when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. These Canaanites... Perizzites, Hittites, Jebusites, termites, and all the rest of the ites in the land of Canaan, these guys were actually burning their sons and daughters to false pagan gods? And God gave them years and years and years to repent, and they never repented, so God booted them out. And yes, he gave the promised land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, when you go there, you're not, um, there shall not be found among you anyone who, look at, look at this, practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. The word of God does not change. Please, ladies and gentlemen, do not ever get involved in any way, shape, or form with astrology. I didn't say astronomy. Don't ever get involved in any way, shape, or form with astrology or witchcraft or the occult. This guy did, Bar-Jesus, and he's gonna be in trouble here in a little while. Look at verse seven now. It says that he, Bar-Jesus, was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the what? Hear the word of God. And so Sergius Paulus was the proconsul of Cyprus. And by the way, when you study history, you know that in 22 BC, the whole island of Cyprus, there in the Mediterranean Sea, the whole island became a separate senatorial, um, a separate senatorial Roman province in 22 BC. That means that in 22 BC, the whole island came under the rulership of the Roman Senate. 
And so this guy, Sergius Paulus, was a bigwig. He was the authority on the island. He was the governor, the proconsul, and he reported to the Roman Senate in Rome. And so after hearing about Paul and Barnabas, you know, you know what's going on in your island if you're the governor. After hearing about Paul and Barnabas and the impact they had on the people there, Sergius Paulus, the governor, calls them in. He wants to hear what they have to say. He wants to hear the word of God. No wonder the Bible says he's an intelligent guy. And by the way, thank you for being here this afternoon because the fact that you're here today tells me that you want to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth and you actually wanna hear the word of God. What does that mean? That means that on the Bible's authority, you are intelligent. Well, praise the Lord for that. And so the governor wants to hear Paul and Barnabas, but there's a problem. His name is Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus was his Hebrew name, Elumas, was his Greek name, and this guy, this Jewish false prophet, stood in the way of the message of Jesus being shared with the governor of the island. Now, how do you think Paul's gonna respond to this guy? Let's find out. Everybody look at verse um, eight. It says, but Elumas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul, the governor, Sergius Paulus, away from the faith. And so apparently Bar-Jesus was an advisor, right? He's a soothsayer, he's involved in the cult, and he's also a counselor or advisor for this governor of the island of Cyprus. And in his position, he decides to look at Sergius Paulus and say, hey man, don't listen to Paul and Barnabas. You don't want anything to do with their message. Now, Paul can feel the anger starting to rise. And it says now in verse nine, but Saul, everybody look at verse nine, but Saul, who was also called what? Paul, okay, and so now the Luke, the author of Acts, is done using the Hebrew name for, of, of Paul, Saul, and now he's using his Roman name because Paul, the, his Roman name is now going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so, but Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Everybody look at me real quick. We're talking about this, this afternoon, this idea, this topic of spiritual warfare. If you and I are not filled with the Holy Spirit, the enemy will eat our lunch. We are no match for the devil. He'll just knock the snot out of us every single time. That's why Michael the archangel when disputing of the, over the body of Moses with Satan said the Lord rebuke you because even Michael didn't wanna go toe to toe with Lucifer who was created by the way as a holy angel and he chose because of the gift of free will that was given to him, he chose to become evil and prideful and he chose to become the devil. And so Paul filled with the Holy Spirit looked intently at Bar-Jesus Remember, he's trying to stop the governor from hearing the truth about Jesus. Paul looks intently at him, verse 10, and he says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And I think, wow, Paul, why don't you tell us what you really think, right? <laughs> verse 11 
He's not done yet. Paul says to Bar-Jesus, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon Bar-Jesus and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Verse 12, good news though. Then the governor believed. Pisteo in the Greek It means to put confidence in. It means to trust. This guy, because of the gospel witness of Paul and Barnabas, this governor put his confidence in, his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This guy, the top dog of Cyprus, got saved. That's good news. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, why in the world was Paul so hard on Bar-Jesus? Here's why. Because a man's eternal soul was on the line. The eternal soul, the eternal destiny of Sergius Paulus was on the line. And that's why Paul decided to come down so seriously on this false prophet, this man Bar-Jesus. But was Bar-Jesus really Paul's primary enemy? Do you really think this man, this human being, was Paul's primary enemy? I'm gonna let Paul answer that question. Later on, he writes to the church of Ephesus, and he says, for we do not wrestle, fight, against what? Flesh and blood. There's your answer right there. So Bar-Jesus was not Paul's primary enemy. Here's the real enemy. We wrestle against, fourth line down, the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. This was written 2,000 years ago, but guess what? The present darkness is still around today. Just read the news. Just read the headlines this morning. And you'll see, as John writes later on in his epistle, that we are of God, but the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. This is why you got rich people um, raping 14-year-olds. Because the whole world lies around, the, the, lies under the sway of the wicked one. This is why there's so much evil and corruption in the world, because the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so, we don't wrestle against human beings, we wrestle against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so Paul's primary enemy was not Bar-Jesus, it was the spiritual forces of evil behind Bar-Jesus. And so Paul and Barnabas, as they're living for the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul and Barnabas, as they're sharing the good news of Jesus with anyone who will listen, they encountered spiritual opposition. They encountered a spiritual battle. And ladies and gentlemen, in the same way, as you and I make a decision, like we just sang a little while ago, I have decided to follow Jesus. If we make that decision in our lives, then we as well are gonna face spiritual battles in our life. If we decide to share the good news of Jesus with other people, if they'll listen, you can mark it down, highlight it in yellow and underline it in red that you will experience spiritual battles in your life. Concerning spiritual warfare, I have good news and I have bad news. So what would, what would you like to hear first this afternoon? 
Yeah, everybody always says that. I don't know why. Okay, so here's, here's the bad news. The bad news is whenever you turn to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, that your face went up on a poster in the post office of hell. <laughs> and you have an enemy who hates you and who's coming after you. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so that's the bad news. Here's the good news. The good news is the risen Lord Jesus Christ is greater than any enemy that we have. He's greater. Did you know that right after the fall of man, right after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and sinned and messed everything up, right after that, God put a prophecy in the Bible that showed that one day the Messiah would come and he would defeat the enemy. It's way back in Genesis 3.15. You don't have to turn there. I wrote it down. God talking to the serpent, the devil. God says this to the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, the future Messiah, he will strike your head. I like the NIV. He will crush your head head and you will strike his heel. And so even though we know that Satan struck the heel of Christ at the cross, we also need to know that through his substitutionary death for us and his bodily resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ crushed the head of the serpent. He crushed his head. And so it's not like we're fighting for victory. No, we're fighting from victory. Jesus is the victor. He already crushed the guy's head. But here's what I heard a preacher once say. That even though the serpent's head has been crushed, his tail still swishes. And that is so true. I watched a YouTube video yesterday morning about some country folk. And they killed a four-foot rattlesnake. And they chopped off its head. And I'm watching this video and I'm like, honey, come here, you gotta see this. We're freaking out. And they take this, this rattlesnake's head, it's like this big, his eyes are still open, it's severed from his body. And they lay it down and then they, out of this bucket or bag or something, they pull out the rest of his body. And according to them on the video, they said they killed the thing an hour and a half earlier. And guess what? An hour and a half after this thing had his head severed, there's his head, severed head, and here's his body. And after an hour and a half of being dead, the snake's tail was still swishing. My wife and I are freaking out. <laughs> and I thought, what an amazing illustration. And by the way, you millennials right now who are on your smartphone looking up the video to watch it, Wait till after the service, because <laughs> you don't want to miss what I have to say. This is going to be one of the most practical messages for your life. And so what an amazing illustration of the truth that Satan's tail still swishes, and it's going to continue to swish until one day, thank God, Jesus is going to come back. Ladies and gentlemen, he's not going to allow evil to go on indefinitely. The Lord will come back. And when he comes back, he'll take Satan and he'll put him in the bottomless pit, lock him up for a thousand years during the kingdom age. And then after the thousand years, he'll let him out. But guess what? He's going to take Satan and throw him into the lake of fire. That's later. 
Right now, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Right now, his tail is still swishing. In our age, we have to be ready to defend ourselves against spiritual warfare. And so that's what the rest of the message is going to be about. If you're taking notes, here's your next point. The next point is, in the spiritual battles that we face, we must put on the whole armor of God. And so we're done in Acts. Please turn right to Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6. You say, why are you going to Ephesians 6, Pastor? Because Bar-Jesus, better yet, the spiritual forces of evil behind Bar-Jesus opposed Paul and Barnabas as they were living for Jesus. And as we live for Jesus today, we're going to receive opposition as well. So we have to be prepared. We have to be ready. And so this is the passage, the classic passage that addresses the subject. And by the way, it's always good to have a reminder about the armor of God. And so if you're looking right now at Ephesians 6, verse 10, verse 10, please say amen. amen. All right, so here we go. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay, so I can't emphasize it enough. We do not, as Christians, advocate violence. We do not advocate punching people or fighting against people physically. That's not our warfare. That's not what we do. What do we do? We know how to engage in spiritual warfare. And so since we have a spiritual enemy, verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand. And I'm so sad because over 19 years or 20 years or so of, 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 of being in ministry, I've seen so many Christians fall. I'm really tired of seeing Christians fall. And here, here's why, because they, they, they choose to ignore practical messages like this that can really help them stand until they take their last breath. It says, stand therefore, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of, what's the word? Truth. truth. Everybody say truth. truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of what peace in all circumstances take up the shield of with which you can extinguish all not some everybody look at me please not some of the flaming darts of the enemy you know some people here's what they like to do if they're not where they want to be in life they like to blame other people Oh, you know, they shot an arrow at me. Or, oh, it's the devil's fault. You know what cowards do? Cowards blame other people for why they aren't where they want to be in life. We're not victims. We're victors in Jesus Christ. Stop blaming other people. Stop blaming other people. Some of you guys really need to hear this. Stop saying he or she or it or whatever. That's what cowards do. We're not victims. We don't blame. We stand. 
We put on the armor. And so with the shield of faith, we're able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In verse 17, we take the helmet of what? And the sword of the spirit, which is the what? The word of God. I'd love to be able to go on and on and on, but for time's sake, uh, we can't. And so what we're gonna do for the rest of our time is we're gonna go through our armor, six pieces, piece by piece, and I wanna teach you how to use this armor as you engage in spiritual warfare. For some of you, um, maybe you are here three, three years ago or, or so when we went through Ephesians, and so this will be a reminder uh, for you. The first piece of armor is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. So before a Roman soldier went out into battle, he always made sure he put on his belt. Lots of reasons. One reason is because his belt held his sword. But another reason, do you guys notice all those long strips of heavy leather? Okay, and so another reason is so that he could have these strips of heavy leather that protected him. They acted like an apron and they protected his midsection. And so just like a soldier put on his belt, we have to put on truth. Right, the belt of truth so that we can resist the attacks of the enemy. Now in John chapter eight, verse 44, Jesus called Satan not just a liar. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. How do you know if Satan is lying? His lips are moving. That's <laughs> what he does. Winston Churchill made it part of his foreign policy that whenever Adolf Hitler spoke, Winston Churchill assumed the man is lying. That was a good foreign policy, right? Because Hitler was a liar. Well, Satan is the father of lies. And so we know, based on what Jesus said, that one of the primary ways Satan comes against you and me is through deception, right? Thoughts, ideas that contradict the truth about God and his will for our lives. So this is what he does. Again, thoughts and ideas that contradict the truth about God and his will for humanity and his will for our lives. And so where do these deceptions come from? Where does this contradiction come from? These ideas and thoughts come from? They come from, I'll give you some examples, the television set. And I'm not saying that all that comes out on the TV is, is evil, but what I am saying is that there's a lot of lies on that thing that's hanging on your wall at home. It comes through movies. And I would challenge you, the next time you're watching a movie and you're hearing what's being said, or God forbid, you're watching people take their clothes off, I wanna challenge you to say, is what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing line up with the truth about God and his will for our lives? You see the lies, the deceptions from the enemy comes through TV, it comes through movies, it comes through music lyrics. So many, I'd say the majority of music today is filled with blasphemous lyrics that dishonor God, that dishonor women, that dishonor men and women made in the image of God through television, through movies, through music, through the media. You turn on one station, they're saying one thing, that's their truth. You turn on another station, it's the exact opposite. I can't, I don't understand this. Is truth relative? 
Let me ask you this, church family. Is truth relative? Do you have your truth and I have my truth and we're all gonna walk off into the sunset together? No, truth is truth. It's either truth or a lie. It's either absolute or not. It comes through TV, it comes through movies, it comes through music, it comes through media, it comes through politicians. It comes through professors all over America and state universities that are constantly contradicting the truth about God and his will for humanity and his will for our lives. It comes through social media. Again, I'm not saying that all these outlets that whatever they say is evil, I'm not saying that at all, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we have to be hermits and go live out in the desert somewhere and hide from the world. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is we have to take strongholds captive and make them obedient to Christ. What is a stronghold? A stronghold is any mental thought or idea that contradicts, again, I'll say it, contradicts the truth about God or his will for our lives. And so here's what happens. Through all these outlets, all these things, Satan's behind it. And what he does is he causes the culture to think in a certain way. So all the culture is buying into a bunch of deception, a bunch of lies. But here is what I have to say to you this afternoon. You and I should not be part of the culture. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 12? Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. Do you know where the vast majority of spiritual warfare takes place? Right between our ears. Right in our minds. There's the battlefield right there. And so what does Paul say to the church of Corinth? If you're taking notes, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Once again, I have to emphasize it. We're not about beating people up. We're not about physical violence. That's not what Christians do. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy what? Strongholds. Okay, so what's a stronghold? Here it is. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge or the truth of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Jesus Christ. And so it's estimated that you and I have 50,000 thoughts every single day. That's a lot of thoughts. But it's the mental strongholds. Once again, it's the thoughts and ideas, the deceptive thoughts and ideas that contradict the truth about God and the truth about his will for humanity in our lives. Those are the things that we gotta take captive. Those are the things that we identify and we take captive and we mentally destroy. And the way we do that, there's only one way, is by abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ and abiding in his word. In the very same chapter where Jesus called Satan the father of lies, this is what he said. He said, if, and that by the way is a big if, so there's the choice right there. If you abide in my word, Jesus said, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. By the way, let's do the opposite of what he said. If you don't, Jesus said, don't abide in my word, you're not my disciples, stop fooling yourself and you will not know the truth and you will not be set free. A lot of people are living under that we're called to something higher. We're called to abide in Christ. We're called to abide in his word. We're called to abide in truth. And when we know the truth, what happens? We're able to identify 
take captive and destroy the lies of the enemy. And then what happens? All of a sudden, more and more, we find this freedom. We're not under the bondage of sin. We're not under the bondage of alcohol. We're not under the bondage of drugs. We're not under the bondage of pornography. We're not under the bondage of sexual immorality. We're not under the bondage of whatever other sin is that the, the, the culture celebrates. We're not in that bondage. We are set free. Why? By the truth of Jesus. Did you know, and I, I had to make sure because I misquoted this last night, so I wanna make sure I quote it correct, that according to Covenant Eyes, which is a ministry for people who struggle with pornography, according to Covenant Eyes, 50% of pastors are looking at pornography. You can check it out yourself, covenant eyes. And 68% of Christian men are looking at pornography. You say, pastor, I really wish you wouldn't say stuff like that because it really makes the whole room feel uncomfortable. Well, well ladies and gentlemen, here's what I'm called to do as a pastor. I'm called to shine a light on sin, because well, here's what I know. When I was growing up in this house, and I'm glad my mom and dad moved out of the house. They were only there for six months or a year. But when I was a little kid growing up in this house in South Tampa, I'd get up in the middle of the night and I'd go into the kitchen and I would get to get a glass of milk or whatever and I'd turn the lights on. And you know what happened when I turned the lights on? Roaches would scatter. And so one of my jobs, the pastor, is to make people feel uncomfortable by shining a light on sin. Pornography is a plague in the church. And what it's doing, it's hindering the church from moving forward. It's hindering the church from experiencing revival. Therefore, it's, it's hindering the church in a revived state from impacting a community that desperately needs Jesus. Do you wanna see spiritual awakening on the Treasure Coast? Do you know God can do that through a church that's revived, a church that's alive? God can do that. And so it's the mental strongholds that we uh, tear down and we do that as we're abiding in Christ and abiding in his word and we're set free. The second piece of armor um, that we wanna talk about today is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. And by the way, before I get into that, let me just say also um, that guys, we, we recognize that this is an issue in people's lives and, and we don't wanna shame we wanna help. And so one of our life groups that we're gonna offer this semester is gonna be a life group that deals with this issue. And I so encourage, if you're having a problem with this, man, get the help that you need. Be done, be done with that stuff. All right, so the breastplate of righteousness. Before a Roman soldier went in the battle, he always made sure he put on his breastplate of righteousness. And the reason he did that was to protect his vital organs his heart, his lungs, his liver, his spleen, because in hand-to-hand -hand combat, man, these guys were taking out their knives or machairas and they're trying to stab each other with fatal wounds. So just like a Roman soldier would put on his breastplate of righteousness, so you and I need to make sure that we're putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Paul said to the church of Corinth, I love this, and by the way, if you're here today and you're not sure if you have a relationship with Jesus, you're not sure if you're gonna to go to heaven when you die, you're not sure if you're quote unquote, in Paul's words, saved, this is for you right here. Look at this, this is the gospel. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us 
so that in him, we might become the what of God? Righteousness of God. What does that mean? That means that God the Father made Jesus the Son, who never sinned ever in his life to be a sin offering, Isaiah 53, for us. So that in him, in Christ, we, we might become the righteousness of God. And so this is life-changing truth right here. That on the cross, the eternal son of God, 100% God, 100% man. But nonetheless, he hung on a cross half naked. And as he did that, he was a sin offering. That means that he bore our sin in his body on the tree. And as he's hanging there, here's what God the Father did. God the Father poured out all his wrath because he's a just God. He's not just a God of love. He's a God of wrath again, and he hates sin. He poured all his wrath on his son. And Jesus Christ, as a sin offering, absorbed. He drank the cup of the wrath of God, even to his last drop. And then he said, it's finished. And he bowed his head and he died. And so what did he do? He satisfied God's wrath against your sin and mine. It's called propitiation. Christ did that. It's a substitutionary death of Christ. And then three days later, he gets up and walks out of the grave victorious over Satan's sin and death. So here's the gospel, that when we, the best way we know how, turn from our sin and turn to Christ alone, and we believe that on that cross, he suffered and died for us, paying for our sins, and he rose again the third day, when we turn to him in repentance and faith, we say, Jesus, I can't save myself. I need you to save me. Here's what he does. He says, okay, I forgive you and I give you my righteousness. Now, now this is the deal of the century. If you're with me, say amen here. Amen. Don't miss this. Do you hear this good news? Here's what, here's what you and I do. We give Christ our sin. And you know what he gives us? His righteousness. Who does that? a God who loves you. He clothes us in the breastplate of righteousness and positionally we are righteous. And here's what I love, that it doesn't end in justification. We know we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We know we have positional righteousness before God. We know that when he looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees the righteousness of Christ. But here's what I know, through the Bible and through experience, that in the process of sanctification, positional righteousness gives fruit to practical righteousness. And all of a sudden now we're finding slowly but surely the fruit of the spirit starts flowing out of our lives instead of the works of the flesh. What does Satan do against a guy or girl like that? What can he do? Accuse us? Accuse us of sin? He's a sinner, she's a sinner. And our advocate Jesus Christ says, paid in full. He's unrighteous. And our advocate says, I've clothed them in my righteousness. Deal the century. If you haven't accepted the deal, man, you need to today. The third piece of armor is the shoes of peace. The shoes of peace. Before a Roman soldier went into battle, he put on sturdy sandals that were strapped tightly to his lower legs. And so on the bottom of the sandals, there were these nails and the nails acted like cleats. And what, what the nails did is they gave him traction as he's out on the battlefield doing hand-to-hand -hand combat against a barbarian or whatever. And so just like a Roman soldier had to put on sturdy sandals so that he could be solid and strong in warfare, 
So you and I also have to put on the sturdy sandals of the good news of God's peace so we can remain stable in spiritual warfare. Here's what I know. How in the world can anyone stand strong and solid when their heart is filled with anxiety and fear and worry and doubt, right? Imagine you're on the battlefield, right? The spiritual battlefield and your heart's full of anxiety and fear and you're slipping and worry and doubt and the enemy's just having a heyday. What do you need? You need to put on the good news of the gospel of God's peace. Look at what Paul wrote to the church of Philippi. In Philippians chapter four, he says, be anxious for how many things? Nothing. In other words, don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer, everybody say prayer. Prayer Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here's what happens. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. And so prayer, prayer leads to peace, which leads to stability. And I've experienced this in my life. A difficulty will come out of nowhere, bam, and all of a sudden I'm made out of the same stuff that you're made out of. I start to fear, I start to worry, I start to doubt. And I know that, you know what? I cannot fight the enemy in my own strength. I need you, Lord. It's time for some prayer. Not now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep type of prayer. I'm talking about an extended season of prayer. And so when a difficulty comes and you start to worry and fear and doubt, here's what you need to do. You need to go out for a prayer walk. You need to go to the beach, you need to go to the park. You need to spend time, extended time with the Lord. And you cast all your care on him because he cares for you. And you just talk to him about that difficulty that's coming into your life because he's supposed to be your best friend. And you say everything that needs to be said from A to Z and you give it to him. And as you're giving it to him, it may be 15 minutes into a 30 minutes or 45 minutes, but here's the promise that at some point, your fear, your worry, your doubt will go away and the peace of God will descend upon you. And all of a sudden, you'll be strong and sturdy and have some traction in your spiritual warfare. And this is what the world needs. And so it's the shoes of the good news of the gospel of peace, the good news of God's peace, that we need to stabilize us. The fourth piece of armor is the shield of faith. The shield of faith, four and a half feet tall, two and a half feet wide, Every Roman soldier had a shield. And so as they're marching out to battle, I want you to picture this. They're all holding their shield of faith. And they're all in a line. And they all have their shields. Now all of a sudden, those barbarians out there, what are they doing? They're sticking their arrows in pitch, lighting them on fire, and simultaneously shooting these arrows. I want you to imagine hundreds of flaming arrows in the night sky descending upon the Roman army. And at just the right moment, the centurion yells, now! And all these guys, these Roman soldiers, kneel down underneath their shields and pop, 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 pop. But guess what? Hey dude, you okay? Yeah, I'm okay, you're okay? Yeah, we're safe shield of faith. 
Just like a Roman soldier had to take the shield of faith, so Paul, and by the way, Paul writing Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, he's under house arrest in Rome. And so he sees Roman soldiers every day. And I think he sees a Roman soldier, and he's, God speaks to his heart and says, write about that. Write about spiritual warfare. This is what we're doing this morning, this afternoon. And so it's the shield of faith that we gotta take up in order to quench all the flaming arrows of the enemy. Paul, writing to the church of Rome, Romans 10, 17, says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the what? The word of Christ. And so just like barbarians shoot their flaming arrows at Roman soldiers, demons are shooting arrows at you. You can't see it. It's in the unseen realm, but they're doing it. And so you gotta have the shield of faith. Faith comes by hearing hearing through the word of Christ. So it's an environments that are teaching the word of Christ, where people are receiving the word of Christ, that faith is birthed and strengthened. You remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter sharing the word of Christ to Cornelius and his family, and right in the middle of the sermon, they believe, they have faith, and the Holy Spirit descends upon them. It's a beautiful thing. Faith was birthed in their hearts as the word of Christ went out. And so it's an environments that we're talking about now where the word of Christ is being shared that faith is birthed in some people's lives and faith is strengthened in other people's lives. Environments like the weekend gatherings that we're here, we're experiencing right now. Thanks for being here. It's your life group during the week. Please join a group here in the next three or four weeks. It's the first Thursday services that are coming up on September 5th. These are all environments where the word of Christ is honored and his word is taught and we're able to take up the shield of faith and our faith is birthed and our faith is strengthened. But if we're neglecting these things, did you know 2,000 years ago they were skipping church? So the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.25 said, stop neglecting the assembling, the gathering of yourselves together as is the manner of some, but encourage one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, stop skipping church. You're trying to do a Lone Ranger thing and you're gonna get annihilated. Again, imagine the Roman army coming out with the shield of faith. Here comes the flaming arrows. All right, we're safe. Okay, they're safe, but what about the guy who wasn't marching with the army? What about the guy who's out on the battlefield all alone and he doesn't have a shield and he's confused and the battle's raging around him? How long is he gonna last, really? Not very long. He will be overcome. It's just like the Christian who thinks they're gonna be okay without the local church. They don't need a local church. They can just say their prayers on the golf course. Well, guess what, buddy? It's not gonna be long and the enemy's gonna have you on your knees. He's gonna be taking your head off. You need the local church. It's Christ's idea. He said, I will build my church. Why would you not wanna be part of his church? And the church of Rome, the church of Philippi, the church of Colossae, the church in Jerusalem, the church of Antioch, the church of Thessalonica, the church of Ephesus, and on and on and on. We're formed 2,000 years ago. The same thing is, to, is today. And by the way, we're just one of hundreds of thousands. And if you don't wanna be part of this church, pick a church. Pick a church where Christ is honored and the Bible is taught and put your roots down in that church. You say, I've, I've done that, they've offended me. Well, guess what? We're gonna offend you too. 
You're gonna get offended wherever you go. So the question is, are you gonna stay home and suck your thumb, or are you gonna say, no, Jesus Christ is Lord, and I'm gonna serve him in a local church? Again, don't be a victim, he, she, blaming others. Stand, march out with the shield of faith in a local church that honors Christ and teaches his word. The fifth piece of armor, this is a short one, is the helmet of salvation. And so before a Roman soldier went out into battle, he always made sure he put on his helmet. Why? Because how dumb would it be if you go out into a battlefield without a helmet? Right? The sword's gonna come and take your head off. And so you gotta make sure you got your helmet on. I was watching the protests um, on one of the news stations yesterday in Tokyo. No, Hong Kong, in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, there's a lot of unrest. I don't know if you knew that. And I saw this one guy, and he was challenging one of the riot police. And this guy had a club or a stick or something. He's just bam, 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 bam on the head of the police officer. But guess what? Police officer's fine. Why? He had a helmet on. So what do we need to do? If we know the enemy's coming at us with a stick, we need to put on the helmet of salvation. Here's what I know. One of the most common tactics the enemy uses in spiritual warfare is to get us, try to get us to doubt our salvation. He comes at us with his sword of doubt. He starts swinging it. Look what you just did. You're not really saved. Oh, how can you call yourself a Christian? Right? And what do we do? Because we don't know the word. We're over in a corner and we're paralyzed in fear, wondering, am I saved, am I not saved, am I saved, am I not saved? Right, that's the enemy's tactic. He wants us to be in the corner of fear, paralyzed, because when we're in a corner of fear, paralyzed, wondering if we're saved or not, what are we not doing? We're not standing full of the Spirit, serving the Lord and his people. Of course he's gonna do that. So what do we need to do? Put on the helmet of salvation. What do we need to do? If you're with me, say amen. We need to believe the promises of God concerning our salvation. My favorite, at least today, it may change tomorrow, is John chapter 10, verse 27 through 30. Please listen to the word of God. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Here it is and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's God's word. That's God's promise. That's his promise. Is he a promise keeper or a promise breaker? He keeps his promises. So take his promise to the bank and stand and serve the Lord and serve his people. Just be done with that. Move on with, with that whole doubting salvation. The assurance of your salvation will act as a helmet. It'll protect you from the enemy's sword of doubt. And here's your last piece of armor. Please stay with me to the end. It's the sword of the spirit. 
Now, what is the sword of the Spirit? It says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, it's the Word of God. The Word of God. And so this is our only offensive weapon. Do you notice that? All the other stuff is defense. Now this is the only offensive weapon, unless, by the way, you want to take your nails and smash someone's head with your shoes of peace. But anyway, um, the sword of the Spirit is our only offensive weapon in spiritual warfare. And did you know that Jesus showed us how to use it? Classic example, wilderness, beginning of his ministry, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards, he's hungry. By the way, quick side note, when you're hungry, when you're tired, when you're stressed out, be careful. You really need to put on the armor of God because that's when the enemy's coming at you with both barrels blazing. And I can't tell you how many people I know that have fallen. And so, listen, Jesus showed what to do. Here's what happened. Satan comes, he knows he's hungry. He says, if you're the son of God, command this stone that it become bread. And Jesus is hungry, but he's not about to give in to the lust of the flesh. He's not about to use his powers for his own self. He'll serve others. He won't use it for himself. And so what does he do? He looks right in the eyes of Satan out in the wilderness. And he says, it is written. By the way, all of these quotes are from Deuteronomy. So some people think he was having, Jesus was having his devotions in Deuteronomy that morning. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Right? <laughs> Satan's like, whoa. He's no match for the word. But how many of you guys know that Satan, he doesn't give up easy? He takes Jesus on a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. Wow, that looks great. He's like, I'll give it all to you, Jesus. Just bow down and worship me. You don't have to go through the cross. No, I'll give it to you right now, like that. Isn't it beautiful? Jesus is not about to give in to the lust of the eyes. So what does he say? He says, get behind me, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Right? Now Satan backs up again. He's feeling it. He's no match for the word of God. But Satan's not done yet. He takes Jesus to the top of the pinnacle. And he says, throw yourselves down. For it is written, sometimes he tries to quote the Bible. False teachers do it all the time. They get it wrong. It is written, he will give his angels charge over you and they will keep you in their hands. They will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Throw yourself down, Jesus, so everybody in the court of Gentiles can say, look, it's Jesus. Oh, look at the angels. Oh, they got him. Woo, yeah. Jesus is not about to give in to the pride of life. And so what does he say? He says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to a foolish test, right? And then I love Matthew 4.11 because it says, after that, that third blow with the sword of the spirit, and I quote, the devil left him. It says in James chapter four, verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
And so when we know the word of God well enough where we know specific verses and passages that can, we can use against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, then we can also use the word of God in spiritual warfare in a way that makes the devil say, I can't handle the word of God. And he leaves. Now, he'll come back you know, another week or so, but you'll have victory for that day. And so in conclusion, you and I have got to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. These are all spiritual weapons that'll help us be victorious over a spiritual foe. And if you wanna go deeper into this topic of spiritual warfare, I highly recommend Dr. David Jeremiah's small book called Answers to Questions About Spiritual Warfare. Dr. David Jeremiah is an amazing man of God. He's lived his whole life faithful to the Lord. He's gonna end well. And he's recommended, or he's written a book that's really good, it's based on the word of God. And so I wanna encourage you I think you can go to Amazon and you can get this book. It really will help you answer questions, by the way, that I didn't have time to answer, like, can a born-again Christian be possessed by the devil or demons? By the way, the answer is no, but I'll let you read the book because he gives lots of answers to questions like that. <laughs>